I've been following you for like years. Like I've known about kind of your journey from sales hacker, freelancing, now into Beam. But obviously, I, I want to make sure that other people are aware of that journey as well before we dive into the competitive Ooh. landscape of Beam and how you've approached that. And so, do you want to just take a couple minutes and just share kind of a little bit of background on your journey from sales hacker at Outreach to Beam while also juggling freelancing duties? I, I did things a little backward. I started out as a freelancer right out of college, kind of by necessity of studying abroad for a graduate program needed something to pay the bills and start paying off student loans. So started working online and did pretty much anything and everything in marketing for five, six years, and then slowly transitioned into B2B tech marketing and then sales tech, got my first full-time startup job, moved into community content with Sales Hacker and Outreach. And then just over the course of a couple of years, realized that I still wanted to work for myself rather than for a different business. So jumped back out on my own with a couple of co-founders and now here we are with Beam. Okay. And you know, that decision making process, right, with Beam, because you were making pretty good money as a freelancer. So why go out and like build a business around it versus just staying as a freelancer? What did that decision making process look like for you? Agency owners and freelancers often make the mistake of thinking that's a you know natural path from freelancing and then, oh, as you scale and start building out an agency, that doesn't have to be the case. You can be an excellent freelancer and make maybe more than you would trying to build an agency with the, what cuts into your profit margin. So just want to get that out of the way. It's not always the right path. But for us, it was a couple of things. It was wanting to learn elements of business that we hadn't had a chance to learn about yet. My wife and I had been freelancers for so long, but we had never had to hire other people or get consistent processes in place for relationships with accounts payable, like all these little things that go into building it into a business. So we just wanted to learn all of that because we knew we could write and we knew we could get paid to write. But what about trying to build a business out of it? And then number two was just getting excited about working with a team, like just training a thought process into people and then seeing them run with that vision. And that's paid off big time, I think. Yeah, I think like, uh, and you know, not to say that what like my side hustle is doing is anywhere comparable, but like there, I've I've gotten uh, questions before of like, hey, like, why don't you try to like go full time with you know consulting with competitive intel or or things like that? And in the back of my head, I don't know if I want to like just like ditch having a team and like working so consistently with like the same group of pe- group of people. Mm-hmm. I feel like there mm-hmm. is something that really like gets me going or just would probably get anybody going and just like working with a consistent group of people and seeing everybody succeed. Yeah, that's been a ton of fun. Yeah, working with really talented people, them it clicking with them, like what we're doing for our clients. And then it takes a load off of that was the other the practical pieces building it into something that's a lot more self-sustaining than a freelance business where you're either doing the work yourself or you're not getting paid. So for us, it's about experimenting with building kind of this self-sustaining organism, team, structure, whatever you want to call it. Right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then when, when it came to like formally building out the Beam business, how did you find out like the right customers to actually go after? I'm sure it was a mix of both you know, sales hacker plus uh, your time freelancing. But yeah, how did you discover like the target audience that you wanted to go after with Beam? I don't know if this is backwards. I'm not a brand marketer or a product marketer, but we started with what we knew was a gap or what we thought was a gap in the market based off of our experience at Community Content and Outreach. Sam and I are one of our co-founders. And that was content that 
relies on actual experts. At Outreach, it happened to be sales leaders and SDRs and sales managers. We, you know, we would just talk to people. That was half of our job. And then when we were working with partners, you know, paid partners for the community, it was like an educational piece for them. We were trying to walk them through turning it into something more either journalistic and storytelling or tactical and in the, and in the weeds rather than just a stale thought leadership article. So we were already doing that for partners. We just realized we could do that as an agency for other companies. It's ideally working with people who are already repeating our messaging and our core beliefs back to us in the first call, like know that they need a change in content, just need a partner to work with them on it. We're not looking to educate the CEO on why investing in brand content is important. And then from there, it's just, yeah, narrowing in on, typically it's Series B and beyond because they have the right team in place, long-term strategy, the budget. It's B2B tech just because we that's our whole goal is to make it that more personable and interesting and fun. That totally makes sense. And that's another piece that I, I want to dive into now, right? Because you shared a great blog a few weeks back that I wanted to talk about. And the headline of the article was, I gave a generative AI tool, a content farm, and a writer the same prompt. Here's what happened. So first off, that's a great hook. Um, I'm not in the business of going out and, and evaluating content marketing uh, agencies, but I was like, okay, this is interesting. I got to read this. So well done there. Second off, this really got me thinking about just competitors like within your space. And I know, you know what generative AI is, um, and we can dive more into that in a, mi- in a minute, but what's, what, what is a content farm? Yeah, I, it's, I went back and forth on using the term it's a very recognizable term in content marketing, but it's a little a little pejorative. It's essentially a productized service for content creation in B2C and B2B, just any form of content. You need a 700-word article for SEO, great. You put in the brief, you hit send, you pay 20 bucks, and you get it back two days later. Just like very productized, self-service, fast, cheap. It's like between five to maybe 20 cents a word. The one I paid for it was 15 a word, 15 cents a word. Just like the, I don't know, RBs of content marketing, which is <laughs> I why love, I, I love didn't that. name names in the article. Yeah. Right, right, right. I feel you. Okay. And so, and where do people typically go for that? Is that like a named service that people would reach out to? Or is that like Fiverr or Upwork? Or what is that? No, marketplaces like Fiverr and Upwork can be helpful. There's a ton of noise to sort through on both ends, which is annoying, both for freelancers and finding good clients and for clients looking for good freelancers. It's more, I I mean, again, I don't want to name drop, but it's like somewhat large scale. They're not agencies, but it's like a productized service. You do a price calculation uh, on their front page like i need ten thousand words on x and they spit out back 850 dollars and you're like great okay you pay for it sight unseen you don't meet the writers you don't hear their process you just send the info and get it back it's very transactional okay got it okay so that helps me understand a bit more about like the content farm piece with respect to generative ai you know you were in business with beam before it was everywhere so the thing that I'm curious now is how has its prominence really affected your business? Is it is it mostly negative or are there some positive elements that you're seeing as well? 
I mean, hopefully it doesn't sound like spin, but I think overall it's positive spin. Like I'm important enough to have spin on something, but like <laughs> it's a hard thing to talk about because I know I'm biased no matter what. I own a content agency. Of course, I'm not going to be like, yeah, chat GPT can do everything for you for all your writing needs, you know? But I think overall it's been a net good for us because it sparked a lot of good conversations about what content can do and what you need to make content do what you need it to do. So, you know, we're talking through the client, this is why we need access to the leadership team. This is why customer interviews are so important and we need the original data and all these things we're walking through with our clients. That's the kind of thing that ChatGBT or, or shoot, I wasn't going to name drop. Like so the, I can take the, that off. The Don't products. worry about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, there's a whole bunch of paid SaaS tools that are essentially ChatGPT. There's generative yeah. AI. That's something they can't do. I'm not saying that, you know, I'm not a skeptic or like, a, I'm not saying it couldn't do it in five years or 10 years. I'm just saying right now it can't replicate that. It can't take a face-to-face interview over Zoom, take that transcript and context and notes and experience and turn that into a compelling feature article or ghost-written article. This episode of the Healthy Competition Podcast is brought to you by the Healthy Competition Community. Whoa, can you believe that? The Healthy Competition Community is where product marketers, competitive intel practitioners, and other go-to-market pros share best practices and act as a sounding board for questions that Google can't answer. Over a thousand messages are exchanged every month, despite there being less than a hundred members in the community. Now, I'm a firm believer in prioritizing high quality topics of conversation and building authentic connections over member count numbers. So this piece is super important to me. But with that being said, if you listen to this podcast, then you'll probably love being in the community. So join today at healthycompetition.co. That's healthycompetition.co. Now back to the episode. So that's, that's one thing that like a lot of competitive intel practitioners will do is we'll try to enable sellers to really figure out a way to properly address a competitor if a prospect brings them up in conversation and it can be tr- it can be tricky right because you know you want to obviously dismiss the competitor in a way that isn't too aggressive or doesn't make you come off as like defensive or unsure or uneasy um so I'd love to hear you know when you do t- have these conversations if somebody brings up you know like generative ai or Let's start with generative AI, because I think that one's a little bit more of like a complex subject. Like if somebody brings that up and they're like, hey, like, how does this come into play? Like, is that something that like we should look into? Is that something that like you all use? Like, how do you navigate like talking about generative AI with customers, knowing that it can kind of be a touchy subject? Yeah, I don't write it off completely because I I actually don't. It's not like a tactical move. It's more talking about the time and place for it. Um, I think if anything... What I could be convinced about is that it can be helpful for the ideation process, for outlining, for basic research. I'm still not fully convinced because I've tried doing it for that and it doesn't, it's like meh kind of results I get when I try doing that. I'd much rather dig into SEMrush and Google around myself and read PDFs and just Listen, Brooklyn, hold it. on. You know, let me just tell you that 99% of people use ChatGPT incorrectly. And I have 10 tips that are going to and help you. Have, you. <laughs> oh my gosh, I've been waiting for this. You know, I was just sitting around Twitter or X or whatever, just waiting for somebody to tell me Thank they you. have the, the key to ChatGPT. I know, right? Nobody has said it yet. <laughs> Thank you for enlightening us, tech bros. 
<laughs> uh, sorry, so I, I interrupted you. Keep going. No, I love it. Yeah, it's not writing it off. It's talking about the time and place for it. You know, if you're a solo marketer at a tiny little DTC startup and you need 150 product descriptions, like, sure, ChatGPT can help with that. Like, you just need the foundational stuff in place. But that's only going to go so far with the type of client we work with. And that's usually folks selling to mid-market or enterprise tech companies. So very picky, uh, long process-oriented, multi-stakeholder type customers. And you're not going to get away with cheap content uh, when you're trying to speak to the C-suite or, you know, VP of sales solutions somewhere. No, absolutely. I mean, that makes a ton of sense. And what what about like the content farm piece? Like, I'm, do you ever get like those like confrontational kind of, well, I'm assuming you'd probably try to write them off because you're at a, I feel like you're at a point where you can really like work with the people that you specifically want to work with. Do prospects bring up content farms ever with you? Like say, oh, well, we could get the same mm-hmm. thing for, you know, $100 or some, some like ridiculous thing like that? Or is that an immediate kind of write-off for you where you're like, eh, I don't think this person really understands? I think thankfully we've done enough the last couple of years to build our brand in a way that by the time we're getting on a call with somebody, they're pretty qualified. We're very clear about our pricing. So if somebody goes on our site, they automatically know if their budget is 100 bucks, we're well out of their price range. Also the approach too, like they're not looking for those just the quick wins for SEO or what have you. They have the foundation built. They just need help elevating their CEO's voice or connecting the dots between product and content, working with their engineers to get their expertise down on paper. The kind of thing that isn't easily solved when you're already stretched thin as a marketer. So long story short, both content farms and ChatGPT or generative AI it's come up as like a conversation, like, hey, what are your thoughts on this? Or how would it apply here? But never in, honestly, in the last couple of years, never in terms of, hey, actually, we could do this for free. Why should we go with you type of question that hasn't come up? So, okay, got it. So that makes sense that they're almost like it's where you're trying, you're working with the client at that point to like educate them, right? At least when it comes to like chat GPT of like, hey, here's where you might want to use this in the future. Here's like kind of where we're at, where we see it's at in terms of usability. You don't really come up against content farms at this point because with your qualifying process, people will just get disqualified pretty quickly before you actually jump mm-hmm. into like an actual phone call or anything like that. I don't, mm-hmm. again, I don't really know like the competitive landscape of content marketing agencies. So if you get into like a competitive conversation, is it just typically against other content marketing agencies or does that even come up very often? Like, is it a very crowded space? I'd love to learn more about that. I wouldn't call it crowded. There is a, you know, pretty core group, but it's not, I don't know, there's lots of projects to go around and we all have our deal breakers and our areas of focus. So we have a good amount of partners we work with and that will refer work to because we don't do SEO, for example, or email marketing. Oh, okay. One-off projects. Yeah, it usually comes down, if it's Coming head to head, it's usually with another agency, sometimes a freelancer or consultant, and it either comes down to budget or honestly area of focus. Like if we're not, if we have focused on interviews and data, but they need somebody to really do like sales one pagers, then it might go another way. 
Okay. That makes a lot of sense. And then like when it comes to like partnerships, you said that that's a pretty good channel for you. Like how, how does that work then for your business? You just work with a pretty core group of, of businesses and they refer other businesses to you or, or how is that set up? Yes. Sometimes it's, it's a two way street. We have a, you know, 10% referral agreement uh, on a two way street with a handful of agencies. Sometimes it's just one way. It's just somebody that we've worked with and like, and sometimes we'll get a kickback on it. Sometimes not. We just have a beam friends list and it's, consultants, freelancers, agencies, uh, you know, that can do SEO, brand building, voice and tone guidelines, the editing, the kind of stuff that we don't do. Got it. Yeah. yeah. So, so you'll do that same thing for those other uh, agencies or freelancers that, that do offer some of those things that you don't. Exactly. Listen, dude, this was super fascinating for me. Like I said, I'm not like, I'm not very close to the content marketing agency landscape. And so it was really interesting to learn sure. a little bit more about, about Beam and, and what you've been up to. Uh, where, where can folks follow you and follow Beam if they want to learn more? Well, yeah, thanks for having me. I'm learning all about the agency space too. I'm only a couple of years in, so <laughs> great to talk about it. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn, beamcontent.co, and on Twitter. Happy to connect. Awesome. All right, dude. Thanks. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Andy. Hey, you made it to the end of the episode. I have one small favor for you now. If you could please rate this podcast five stars wherever you're listening to it, that'd be super helpful for me. For Spotify, you can only leave a review on the mobile app, and you can do that on the top of the Healthy Competition podcast profile. And for Apple Podcasts, you have to scroll to the bottom of the show's page and click Write a Review. Each podcast episode takes about five hours of my time from beginning to end, while reviewing it should only take about five seconds of your time. Plus, you'd be making my day. So thank you so much in advance, and see you in the next episode.